Happy birthday, Two Rivers. Yeah. Amen, amen. 2,800 lives changed. That is what it is about right there. That is why we exist. And I am so glad to be able to be a part of that. And I am so glad that I am able to be here and be a part of that. Now, some of you are like, wait a minute, who are you? So uh, we'll, we'll back up a little bit, and I got a picture here of me and Will and our, nope, the other one. Yes, there we go. This is a picture of me and Will when we were about four. This is probably the last time you ever saw me in a three-piece suit. I just want to say that. And that is actually Will and his brother and two sisters and me and my older sister. Uh, when we were about four or five years old, Will and I, I've, I can say I've known him my whole life. He can't say the same because I'm about five months older. So he, I got a head start on him. But I want to point out here, I'm five months older than him, but he's already taller than me. I mean, at four years old, he already passed me. That's just not fair. Life is not fair. But anyways, God bless short people. Amen? Two people. Thank you. God bless short people. Amen? All right. So Will and I have gone way, way, way back. And I was actually... Uh, living in Binghamton for a while, I was working as the uh, Chi Alpha and Interfellowship uh, pastor at uh, SUNY Binghamton. My mind went blank. What is the university called? Binghamton. <laughs> at SUNY Binghamton, I was uh, the Chi Alpha pastor there when I, I got a call to go up to Oswego to be an assistant pastor. There was a pastor that was up there that needed a kidney operation immediately. And so they needed someone to come and be the assistant pastor immediately for free. And there's not many people that are able to step into a role like that. So he called and said, do you know anybody? And I said, I'll go. And so I went up there and I was in Oswego for about four years. And while I was there, I got a call from Will sometime after Thanksgiving before Christmas, about nine years back. And Will said, I believe God is calling me to start a church in Binghamton. And I know you'd lived in Binghamton for a while. And would you be willing to, to join me on this team? And I said, let me pray about that. Yes. So <laughs> there we were. And now the other picture. This is, these, these are the OGs right here. This is some of the original crew that was part of the launch team eight and a half years ago. We were about to go out and do surveys. And so we got Mark Edwards, Andrew Rosenbacher in the house. Andrew's up there. And then me and Will and they, uh, Ryan and Dave are there. And so this is a crew. Uh, Crystal's up front, Mark Edwards, and Debbie, so Will's mother-in-law. So this was some of the original crew going out doing this. From small beginnings like that, 2,800 people. Lives saved, changed for eternity. That is what it is about. And so I was actually, I was... Literally the first one on the ground. I was able to come back to Binghamton about two weeks before Will did. So I was, <laughs> you could say the first one, but I was here and I was part of this original team and I was working with Two Rivers when we were at Regal Cinema and it's so beautiful to see this building and to see what God has done. We had been praying and working and looking 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 for the right place. But God was saying, wait, because I got something just right for you. And it's so beautiful. I remember preaching at Regal Cinema, and you're looking up at the audience, 
and there's these lights that are blinding you. You can't see anybody. So it's good to be able to see all your lovely faces today. But anyway, so I was part of that original team. Uh, but then in 2014, God called me to go to Turkey. And actually, I was, uh, every day I was writing a devotional for two rivers called uh, theriverwalk.org. It still exists if you want to go on it. That's my shameless plug. So there is that. Uh, and I was writing for that. And every day I would wake up, I would get my newspaper, go over to McDonald's, and I would read the world section of the newspaper. And then I would type out the devotional and then go about my day and go working at Uno's. Uh, to, uh, uh, Uno's, where is Richie? Is Richie in here? Wave, Richie. He's in the back. But Richie was actually, I worked with him at Two Rivers, and I've been able to see. There he is. I worked with this guy. I have been able to see firsthand the way his life has been changed because of Two Rivers. And so it is amazing to see. And yes. So, yeah, it was beautiful to see that. But I actually was working with him, and I'm like, I didn't recognize him. When, when I was coming back now, I didn't recognize him. He's just so different, and he's changed so much. And that's so beautiful to see specific stories like Tommy Henry and, and like Richie and so many of the others that are here. Andrew even uh, was sharing his testimony two weeks ago. It's so beautiful to see that. But anyways, we've been talking about what is love. And two weeks ago, Pastor Andrew uh, led us off with how do you love an addict? And then last week, Will was talking about how do you be a good lover? And when we were first talking about this, I was like, please don't give me that one. I'm 43 and single. Nobody wants me to be talking about how to be a good husband. I'm just not the right person. So Will took that one and did a much better job than I could. But this week I'm doing how do you love your neighbor? And Will was talking last week there were three different words for love. In the Bible, there's three different Greek words for love. One of those is eros. And eros is a passionate, uh, it's erotic, it is emotional. It is, it is that love that most people talk about when they say love. And when someone says, he doesn't love me anymore, what she's really saying or what he's really saying is, the thrill is gone. Right? <laughs> and that's eros love. And that is within godly principles and godly bounds, like Will talked about, a great and a beautiful type of love. There is also brotherly love, phileo, phileo love, uh, where we get Philadelphia from. And that, that is, uh, for example, how you would love your family or how you would love uh, your coworkers or someone that you're very close with, your best friend. Soldiers, how they love each other as far as just the camaraderie that would be on the, on the, in the foxhole. That is phileo. That is a brotherly love. But today we're talking about agape love. And we, in, in talking about agape love, we actually, uh, the verse that we're using in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that verse and that scripture is actually agape love all the way through. So when we read 1 Corinthians and it says, love is patient, love is kind, love is not proud, love is not boast, love is not rude, it is not easily angered, it is not keeps no record of wrongs. All, every time it says love, it's actually saying agape. So we've been using it for all three of them, but really the love we're talking about today, that is the love that, that our verse is talking about. So when we read 1 Corinthians, that's this type of love that we're talking about today. And uh, in this, 
I'm sorry. Yeah, in this, this is, uh, eros is a erotic or a passionate love. Phileo is a brotherly love. Agape love is a giving love. Or we could also say a godly love because this is the way God demonstrates his love to us in the way we are also called to demonstrate that same love to others. So in this, uh, Jesus was asked once, uh, one of the religious leaders came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus turned and said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second one is exactly the same. In Greek, that's what it would actually be. It says that the second one is like this, but it's actually identical. The second one is identical. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the same way we are called to love God, we are also called to love your neighbor. And going back to Two Rivers' original uh, OGs, I got an apartment and I got a house that was actually for four people. And uh, I came and another guy that was going to come up with us from Baltimore and then two other guys from Springfield. And we were all living in the same house. And that was an adventure. <laughs> and talking about how do you love the unlovable sick four guys that don't know each other all in one house and then throw in all of the emotions and, and passion and fire of launching a church. I was literally breaking up fights. I am not joking. I'm breaking up fights. There are some people that were clean and some others that were very not clean. There were some people that were good at paying rent and others that still owe me eight years later. <laughs> so how do you love your neighbor? This is something that I had to practice right from the start. How do I demonstrate love to somebody who my name is on the lease, so I'm responsible for the security deposit, and they're putting holes in the wall so they can go next door and smoke pot with their friends? Um, God help. So this, this love, uh, how do you love your neighbor, is what Jesus was talking about. Love is patient. Love is kind. It, it keeps no record of offenses. And, and to, to, to try to do that, so I can say from experience that I wasn't very good at that right away, always. Um, but along with that also, this is not the first time Jesus is using these two scriptures together. There was actually another time, and it's our scripture today, Luke chapter 10, verses 25. If you guys want to get out your phones and hop on to version, Luke 25, I'm sorry, Luke 10, verses 25 to 29 Another guy, another expert in the law, is coming to Jesus, and he's coming to test him. And the word uh, test is actually, the Greek word is actually used four times in the New Testament. It's used once here and three other times. And all three other times that it's used, it's used, don't test. Okay. Two times, Jesus, when he's being tempted by Satan, tells Satan, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's the same word. And then a third time that it's being used, Paul is writing to the church, and he tells the church, do not test Christ. So this religious leader is coming to do something that he shouldn't be doing. And really what he's doing is he's trying to put himself in authority over Jesus. He's coming to test him, like Jesus is his student. He's coming to test him, like, Jesus, let's see what you really know. 
And Will talked about a few weeks back, I remember it as Will was talking about how when he was at, a, at the church in Parkrest and he's sitting up in the balcony and he was like saying, if I really have faith, I can step over the balcony and walk down. That is putting God to the test. And we are not called to do that. Because what is happening there is God, Will in his heart or us in our heart are saying, God, if you are really God, you will do this for me. Well, if we're putting God to the test like that, God's not in authority anymore. We're trying to take our authority for ourselves. We're saying, God, I'm going to do this. What are you going to do? So we're basically demanding God obey us almost when we're putting God to the test like that. There is, there is a big difference between that and testing God like I'm actually doing a week from now. Because uh, this, this Sunday, Sunday, uh, uh, February 21st, a week from now, I'm landing in Turkey. Now, back in October, I was kicked out of Turkey. I currently have a three-month visa. So I have three months to get to Turkey and figure it out and make things work long-term, or else I'm going to be going back. That's not putting God to the test like this religious leader is. That is stepping out in faith. Because I believe God has told me, this is where you need to go. And I'm saying, okay, if this is really you, God, I'm going to do it. So I'm testing God, but in this type of testing, I am saying, God, you're my authority, and I will follow you and see if I'm really hearing or not. That type of testing is good and healthy. That's what Gideon did. That's, that's, that, that is a healthy type of testing. What this religious leader doing is he's saying, I am authority. Jesus, you listen to me. And so he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns to him and says, well, what do the scriptures say? What does the Bible say? What does the law say? And immediately when Jesus is doing this, he is, two things are happening. First of all, nobody likes somebody that always has all the answers. Nobody likes to have a conversation with someone where every time you're, you're doing it, husbands, sometimes your wives don't really want you to tell them what the answer. They just are trying to tell you the problem. And that's true with coworkers, and that's true with friends, and that's true with neighbors. I'm taking it on faith it's true with husbands because I'm not one. But uh, anyways, we, so nobody likes someone that always has all the answers. But also, Jesus is turning the authority issue around. Because when the religious leader was turning to Jesus and saying, let me test you with this question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is taking the authority and putting it back where it belongs on scripture. And Jesus is saying, what does the Bible say? So it's not necessarily you and I that the authority issue is about. The authority is scripture. And that's true for all of us. If you want to know what, what does God say about something, first and foremost, before anything else, check the word. Before anything else, check the word. Because scripture is ultimately authority over us, not us over scripture. And scripture is ultimately authority over Pastor Will and, and me and Pastor Andrew and Pastor Jared and anyone else who might get up here. Test what we're saying against the word. Check what we're saying against the word because the word has authority over us. And the word has the authority. And Jesus was saying, Scripture is the authority. Now, I saw how this can actually play out. Uh, I was on a bus in, in a city in Turkey, and I'm going to do my best to be very big for 
vague for security reasons, so I'm not going to use people's names or not talk about specifics. That's for security issues. But these things really did happen. And any testimonies I share are real, but I won't use specific names. But I was on a bus in one city, and I start to have a conversation with two people that are next to me. And we're talking about uh, different movies, and, and it turns towards the conversation more about God. And I introduce them in Turkey on a bus to the Version Bible app. Does anyone have that app on your phone? Anyone whose hand is not up, wh- why? <laughs> Everybody should have that app, and it's beautiful. And it's in hundreds of languages, including Turkish. And so I got these two people to put that Bible app on their phone so that they can read scripture in Turkish anytime they want to. So basically, instead of telling them the answers myself, I said, hey, look, you can find out for yourself. You can look it up for yourself. That was the last conversation I had with them. I completely forgot all about it. Now, I was meeting with one of the Turkish uh, pastors uh, every month, and he came to me a couple months later, and he said, a girl showed up at our church and said, hey, is BJ here? Does BJ go to this church? And he's like, well, I know him, but he doesn't go here. And she was like, well, he gave me a Bible And I've been reading that Bible, and it's just been like a fire inside of me. And I'm like, this is one random conversation where I didn't really witness at all. All I did was give them the word and let the word speak for itself. And that is sometimes the greatest testimony and the best testimony we can do. And that is the first thing Jesus did was point it right back to Scripture and say, what does the Scripture say? And his religious leader turned, and he knew the Bible very well, and he said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, interesting thing in the Greek, the word love is only used one time in this verse. So an actual, a better translation would be, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That would actually, we, we to, for understanding purposes, we had love a second time, but actually he only said it once. So there's one love, but there are three subjects of that love. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Basically what he's saying is love God with everything you've got. And sometimes we try to, to break this up with what does a mind mean and what does... No, no, no. Everything. And he's saying every aspect, every way you can, with everything you have, love God. And in the same way, love your neighbor, that's the second one, as yourself. That's the third one. And a lot of times we, we turn around and we, we translate these as love God and love others. And that is very important. And that is correct and that is accurate. But we are supposed to love others the way we love ourselves, And both of those are supposed to be agape love. So go look at that verse in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Look at that chapter and ask yourself, am I patient with myself? Am I kind the way I think about myself? Am I keeping a record of wrongs? Am I remembering things I did 10, 15, 20 years ago? And it's keeping me from moving forward. Am I kind? Am I gentle with myself? Because that is just as important as loving others. Because how can we healthily love other people if we don't even know how to love ourselves? 
And I'm not saying this is, sometimes people take this too far, but there needs to be a balance, and we need to be able to love ourselves as, as well as loving other people, and ultimately loving all of them the way we love God. So the religious leader says this, and then Jesus turns and says, okay, that's right. If you'll do these things, you'll inherit eternal life. That's all there is to it. We can close right now. That's the end. Love God, love others. Boom. Done. Finished. But the religious leader asked the wrong question. Because the religious leader should have asked, how? Instead, he asks, who? Who is my neighbor? Because the religious leader wants to exclude this as much as possible. To limit this as much as possible because it's easier and it's safer that way. And so Jesus turns and tells him this story. And we're going to watch a short video. God's story. The Good Samaritan. So part of God's story is about a good Samaritan. And it goes like this. When Jesus lived on earth, he often told stories to teach us things. Stories that teach a lesson are called parables. One day, Jesus told a parable about a good guy from a place called Samaria. A good Samaritan to a group of Jewish people. It all started when a Jewish expert in the law asked Jesus, what must I do to receive eternal life? Basically, he was asking, what do I have to do to be perfect? Since this guy was an expert in the law, he thought he already knew how to be perfect because he knew all the rules. He just wanted to see what Jesus would say. Of course, Jesus knew what the man was thinking, so he asked him, what is written in the law? The man said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Love him with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus answered him by telling this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Everybody listening was Jewish, and they could probably all picture the exact road Jesus was talking about. He continued, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. You might expect a priest, who was supposed to serve God, to help, but he didn't stop. Then Jesus said, a Levite came to the place and saw him, but he passed by on the other side too. Levites were assistants to priests, so maybe you'd expect them to help too, but he didn't stop either. Finally, Jesus said, a Samaritan came along. Remember, a Samaritan is a person from Samaria. That's near Israel, where God's family, the Jews, lived. But here's the thing. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. In fact, nobody hearing this story would ever expect a Samaritan to help. Because Samaritans and Jews couldn't stand each other. But Jesus said, when the Samaritan saw the man, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out money and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will pay you back for any extra expense you have. Then Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law didn't even want to say the word Samaritan, but he admitted the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In other words, go and love everyone. Even people we don't like or people who everybody else wants to avoid. See, when we show love, we're obeying Jesus. Obeying God doesn't mean just doing what his rules say. It means loving him more than anything and showing his love to every single person that we meet. And that's the story of the Good Samaritan.
So in case you missed it, here's the quick version. A man asked Jesus how to get eternal life. Jesus said, what is written in the law? The man said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Love him with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Then the man asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus told a story. If you missed Jesus' story, here's the quick, quick version. A Jewish man got beat up. A priest walked by. A priest assistant passed by. A man from Samaria actually did help. That was a surprise. Jesus had taught them, we obey God when we show love. And that's part of God's story. So in that story, there was a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this is downhill. It's about a 16-mile road. You're going about three-quarters of a mile down. Jericho is actually the lowest city on the planet. Okay, Jericho is 846 feet below sea level. So it is the lowest city. It is the most geographically depressed city in America, or in the world. Okay, now, shortly before Will and I and everybody started coming, there was a survey done by Gallup Polls. The most emotionally depressed city in America was Binghamton. Okay, so Jericho's at the bottom. Binghamton was at the bottom. A man went from Jericho to Binghamton. Okay, but Jericho, or I'm sorry, from Jerusalem to Binghamton. But Jerusalem was called Mount Zion. Okay, Jerusalem was up in the hills. It was up high. So we're going to call that Cortland. Okay, so a man was going from Cortland to Binghamton. And on the way, a bunch of thugs from Whitney Point beat him up. There you go. A bunch of thugs from Whitney Point. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute here. A bunch of thugs from Whitney Point beat him up. Now, there was also a priest who was going down. So when Jesus says in the Bible, going down, that means he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Why would the priest be in Jerusalem? Because that's where the temple is. The priest had been serving in church. He's leaving church to go back home. And on his way, leaving church to go back home, he sees this man and passes by him. Now, a lot of you, oh, that's so wrong of the pastor. That's so wrong of that priest. But let me, let me just explain to you, I've been in ministry. When you're preaching on Sunday and you're done, you don't want to do anything else except for go home and go to sleep. Okay. Pastors, this is emotionally and mentally tiring work. And when they're done, they want to just go home and go to bed. So I can understand what that priest was probably thinking. And if you love your pastors, don't call them on Sunday afternoon. Okay? Unless you're dying, wait till Monday. If you love Pastor Will, give him his Sunday afternoon to relax. Because pastors need that. And Jared's like, that's right. <laughs> give, give them time to relax. So this priest was going down. He was tired. He'd just been serving God. He sees this man, and he knows he should help. But he's just tired. All right. Then it says the, Levi was the Levite was coming by. The Levite was coming. Okay, so he was going uphill. He was going from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, why a Levite is kind of like someone that attends one and serves one. A Levite someone who's on the host team, 
or on the worship team. A Levite is someone who's serving in the kids' ministry. A Levite's someone who's over here praying for fresh start. That's a Levite. Levite's on his way to church. He's got responsibilities. He's got responsibilities at the temple he needs to be there for. So he's going by and he sees this man and he has to choose. Now, if I help this guy and this guy is from certain races and I am unclean, I'm no longer able to serve in the temple. If I help this man and he dies on the way, I am unclean. I'm no longer able to serve at the temple. So the Levite had a choice to make. Am I going to help this guy or am I going to help in church? So this is, again, a very legitimate excuse he would have for passing by. The Levite passes by, doesn't help him. He makes the wrong choice. Finally, the Samaritan comes by. And like the video is saying, the Samaritan is someone that would, they did not get along. They believed differently. The Jews would call them heretics. They said, you've got it all wrong. Your religion is all wrong. It's like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Islam. And, and you think you've got it right, but you're, you've got it all messed up. And so the Jews hated Samaritans. And a Samaritan was coming to Jerusalem. Now, what is a Samaritan doing going to Jerusalem? Why is a Samaritan coming to Jerusalem? That's like saying a Red Sox fan was on his way to Yankee Stadium. Or, <laughs> no, put your hand down. <laughs> or, that's like saying a Mormon was coming to church. Okay, we would accept them here, but many churches would not. Because they don't believe the right thing. So he was coming uh, up, and he sees this man, and he helps him. This is already surprising. Then he brings them to the inn. Now, what is the inn? It doesn't say it in your Bibles, but actually we know what that inn between Jericho and Jerusalem, we know what that inn was called. Two Rivers Church. That is our responsibility. If we are to be a neighbor, we are to find the people that are emotionally, physically, spiritually bruised and beaten and dying on the side of the road, pick them up, help them, and get them here. Right. The Samaritan brings him into Two Rivers Inn. He brings him to Two Rivers Inn. He takes care of him, and then the Samaritan goes on his way. But that beaten, dying man stays at the inn. Okay? So I ask, who is your neighbor? Jesus turned and said, who was the neighbor? And the religious leader said, the one who had mercy, the one who had compassion on him. Who is your neighbor? Who is the person that you know that emotionally, that spiritually is broken and bruised and beaten and dying? Who do you know that you can pick up, show love to, and then bring them to the inn? Who can you bring here? Because this inn is a life-giving inn. This church is a life-giving church. And if you can show love to them out there enough that they will trust you enough to come here, God will change them. I can guarantee that. For me, my neighbors are in Turkey. I'm going to where I'm not wanted. Who is your neighbor? Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. Father God, I thank you 
that you've taken so many of us who were hurt and beaten and broken and, and bruised and dying on the side of the road, you picked us up and you brought us in. I thank you that you've done that for so many of us. But God, there's so many more. Binghamton was once the most oppressed city in, in the U.S. It's still in the top 100. We've improved a lot, partly because of Two Rivers and the change that this church has made in this community. And it's improved, but there's still a long way to go. And all of us know people. We all know people who need you. God, give us the courage to step out. Give us the courage to see them and love them and be the neighbor that they need so that they can encounter you. God, sometimes we'll be misunderstood for doing it. Sometimes we will be ridiculed or mocked. Let it be. Give us the courage to love our neighbors, knowing that that's everybody. That's everybody. In your name we pray, amen. Now when Jesus was telling this story, Jesus was actually being autobiographical because Jesus is the greatest Samaritan. Okay. The good Samaritan was despised and rejected by the Jews. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. The good Samaritan saw the man and had compassion on him. Well, we were still sinners. God showed his love for us like this. When we were bruised and beaten and broken on the side of the road, Jesus had compassion on us. The good Samaritan bound up that man's wounds. Isaiah 53.3 and Luke 4.18, Jesus binds up the brokenhearted. And by Jesus' stripes, we are healed. Jesus bound up our wounds. The good Samaritan brought him to an inn. Jesus brought the inn to the world. Jesus established a church to be a place where those people can come, where we can bring people. The good Samaritan promised the innkeeper I'm going to come back. Take care of him now. If there's any more in the need that's needed, I'll come back for him. Jesus is coming back. So when Jesus says, who was the good Samaritan? Another answer could have been, you are. 